You can be seated. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the third chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, page 627 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. If you're wondering why we're here this morning, it's because a few weeks ago, mid-September, we started working through Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1, and we've been working our way ever since. And so here we are this morning around verse 19 of Daniel, chapter 3. I'm going to read the Bible, and we're going to pray and ask God for his help that we always need on these occasions, and then we'll get, we'll get right to it. Daniel chapter 3, verse 19. <clears throat> Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men That we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, Prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree. And usually the king does this and lots of people get in trouble. (laughs) I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces. Here we are. And their houses be turned into piles of rubble. Excuse me. For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word, and please may God grant us understanding of it this morning. Would you please pray with me? Father, you are a good and gracious God. God, everything we said in the last song is so true. Now, Father, as your word is open, please give us grace, which we, we need now. Keep us steady in the revealed truth here, and may we never yield to the terror or threats of mere men or women, but persevere in honoring your name, obeying your Son with compassion on the souls of all, all the way to our end. The world, Father, is in desperate need of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so may we see him this morning in the text. May we tell of him then with our lips, adore him in our lives, and thank him often, in fact, every day for the great truth of the gospel. And so it is in his name, Jesus, and for his sake that we ask these things. Amen. 
Well, I hope your Bible is open because last time we learned of this historical account in which King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1, you'll see it there, he made an image of gold. Having made the image, he summons his best and brightest. That's verses 2 and 3. They line up and they're told when the band plays, verse 4, you must bow. And if you don't bow, you will burn. And as you would suspect, almost everybody bows. However, three Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow. They didn't bow because as we've learned many times this morning already, commandments one and two of the ten that God gave his people said not to, which means they were not bowing because uh, of a personal conviction they held to. No, they were not bowing because of God's command, which clearly said not to. Therefore, they didn't. But could they have? Could they have bowed and still not sinned? For example, could they have said, well, the statue's a joke. It doesn't mean anything to us. So if I bow, it's not going to mean anything. Could they have said that? Could they have said, well, the king's not asking us to say anything. He's just asking us to do something. So we could just slip in with the crowd, slip out. And after all, the king has been very nice to us. He's given us a nice house. He's given us a nice job. Hate to lose all that just for something like this. Could they have said, we're so far from home. Our mothers will never find out. Could they have said, you know what? God will forgive us anyway. And you know, there's a whole lot of people that don't even like God here. And they're much worse than us. Could they have said, you know what? If we bow down, we won't die. And if we don't die... We could be even more useful to God, and God wants us to be useful. So what do you say, guys? Let's do this. Let's bow with our bodies, but not with our hearts and our heads. However, you see the text there. Did they say, did they do, or think any of that? No. Why? Well, because God said pretty clearly, Exodus 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them, idols, or worship them. Now, did you notice that? You shall not bow down or, two things here, or worship them. In other words, God is a clever father. He knows his children very well. There's no monkey business here. None of this. My body was doing it, but in my heart, I wasn't. No, no, no. Don't even bow because if you bow down, it means something. It may not mean anything to you, but it means something to God, and it will mean something to the people who see you bow down. Which reminds me of a high school friend whom in my high school days with my high school friend, we went to a high school party. I didn't drink alcohol, neither did he. But he would walk around at this party with a beer can in his hand, but he would tell me, Psst, don't worry, it's filled with water. Nobody knows. Hey, hey, okay. But you see, the fact that it was by appearance, beer gave everyone there the impression that he was drinking beer. He was actually an underage drinker. And you see the problem. Or, now kids don't do this, but this is the way you can go. You tell your children, you can only date at age whatever. And so the day comes and they say, I want to go to the movies with them. And you say, well, you can't date until age whatever. And they say, it's not a date. We're just friends. Okay, here's another one. Kids, your parents tell you, take out the garbage. Then they go off to work. They come home. The garbage is still there. 
They say, I told you to take out the garbage. You say, I know. They say, it's not done. You say, you said to take out the garbage, but you didn't say when. And there you go. Don't bow down. They didn't bow down, says the hymn writer. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. That's the promise of John 14 and 15. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Which is why if your Bible's open, you'll see after some of the Chaldeans around verse 12, tell the king, uh, those Hebrew men, they're not bowing. His response in verse 13 is that he freaks out. Red hot fury is actually a better translation. He, he freaks out again, verse 19, when the men respond to him as they do. Verses 17 and 18, right? We're not bowing. We don't need to defend ourselves. Our God can save us from you. But even if he does not save us, we're not bowing, which means, this is what not bowing means to them. We won't serve your gods and we won't worship the image of gold you set up. Now, loved ones, this will be good for us to remember because I've been telling you week by week purposely that in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is a picture of the human condition. He's a picture of of man as man. He's a picture of you and me outside of Christ. So when Nebuchadnezzar does what he does here, let's think. His own standing is tied up with his statue. If you like, his contentment and his peace is tied up with what he wills and what he wants. And when he gets both, then he feels better. The three men's response is tied to what God wills and what God wants. In essence, it's tied to eternal truth, theology. And they might not feel good when the thing unfolds. However, you see this in your Bible. One gives way to calmness. These three men are not rattled here at all. The other excites rage. Nebuchadnezzar is beside himself. Because you want to say, what's going on? I mean, if anyone should be freaking out, it should be the guys. They're about ready to burn. But we have the king of the known world, the king who who rules the world, the king who is basically undefeated in battle in the world. He's his oyster, if you would. He is freaking out. He is enraged. Why? Well, Jesus always said this. If you would try to save your life, your will, and your want, you'll lose it. If you would... Lose your life for his sake. Then you'll have it. Real life. So again, God's objective truth. Or if you like, God's revealed will. When when obeyed, don't bow down. When obeyed, gives way to calmness here. Man's subjective will up against God's truth. When challenged by God's truth, gives way to rage. The former is tied to theological truth. The latter is tied to Nebuchadnezzar, what he wants and what he wills. That is the human condition. And you see this all throughout the life of Jesus. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you'll come across this often. You have a very religious Pharisee who appear like holy people. Okay, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they're holy people. And so the Pharisees come up against the Son of God, and they have a disagreement. And the Son of God tells them, guys, you're wrong here. Let's check the Old Testament to make sure what I'm saying is true. They check the Old Testament. Jesus is true. Now, if they love truth, 
right? They're holy men, son of God. They should be on the same team. If they love true truth, surely they would have said something like, oh, thank you. That helps a lot. Oh, thank you for the clarity, right? Because they're supposed to be on the same team. But those of you who know your Bible, do they do this? No, they do not. Why not? Well, because their own version of the truth, which was clearly wrong, exposed by the Son of God, was tied to their own mind, their own will, and it was what worked for them. And when confronted with truth given by the Son of God, it was walking away in fits of rage and they're ticked and they start making plans for the Son of God's death. Holy men making plans for the Son of God's death. It was the same thing for Cain and Abel, right? Cain is ticked. His offering not accepted. His truth was exposed as false. And he can't stand it. God has to come along. Genesis 4 verse 6. Why are you so angry? Relax. Everything will be fine if you just do what I say. And of course he doesn't. And the rest is history. So we have to ask ourselves at this point. Is our anger, is my anger often tied to the fact that when my will is rejected, when my want is challenged, then I'm just like Nebuchadnezzar. Might not be throwing anybody in a fire, but man, if I could. <laughs> you see, this is why a humility of heart and a tenderness of mind is, is our calling, because apart from Christ, we are Cain. We are Nebuchadnezzar. Outside of Christ, we are the Pharisee. If God's grace doesn't come, and give us the righteousness of Jesus, we are doomed. Ask yourself, how good and how often do we have to be good to not be a Nebuchadnezzar, a Cain, or a Pharisee? See? God wants full obedience all the time. And you know, and I know, that we can't give that. So you see, the Nebuchadnezzar is a picture of the human condition outside of Jesus. The three men... They're a picture of Jesus. They're just doing what they've been told to do. So they're not going to capitulate when a clear command is at stake. A personal conviction is one thing, but God's command, completely different. Clearly they are innocent. Jesus was innocent. But to the eyes of the king, if they don't bow, they're as good as dead. Verse 15, do you see it there? What God will deliver you from my hand? In other words, don't you know who I am? That's the king. Don't you know who I am? The same thing happened with Jesus before Pilate. John chapter 19, verse 11. Don't you know that I have the power to free you or crucify you? Right, I'm the one, Jesus. I have your life in my hand. So, King Nebuchadnezzar, boys, bow. You bow, you'll live. You don't, you won't. Talk to me, Pilate says to Jesus, if you want to live. Think about the temptation scene. The very last temptation, Jesus, right? The evil one says to Jesus, look at all those kingdoms and all the splendor. And it can be all yours if what? Just bow down to me. Knees, head down, that's all. And of course, Christ will not bow to Satan. And these three boys, men, excuse me, won't bow to this image. They both choose to trust and obey. And they're going to leave the fallout to God. And loved ones, you find nothing in the English translations or even in Aramaic which gives us a thought to say these guys' reply to the king was bombastic or rude or ill-mannered. Is that important? In my mind, it's very important because you see the same thing in Jesus Christ. This is Isaiah 53, 7. 
Speaking of Jesus, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, he didn't even open his mouth. He trusted himself. One Peter, we say this often, I entrust myself to the one who judges justly. I'm silent because I need to go to the cross. My dad said to. I'm silent because people's sins need to be atoned for. My dad set it up that way. And you see, part of what makes this so compelling is that throughout the history of the Bible, the the, uh, phenomenal, the extraordinary, the miraculous, is actually fairly limited if you really think about it. There's only four occasions all throughout the Bible where miracles are happening all the time. The first is Moses, time of the Exodus. You have it in the time of Elijah and Elijah. And when the prophetic ministry was being established, you have those miracles there. You have it here in Daniel, although in the whole, not a whole lot, but you do have it here in Daniel, in the exile. And you have it in Jesus and the apostles. However, apart from those four periods of time, the story of God dealing uh, with his people is not usually marked by dramatic things, miraculous things, not consistently and not continually. And I say that because we need to be careful because I don't want you to think, well, the boys actually knew that this kind of thing was run of the mill for God. They knew they were just speaking. They knew God would just bail them out. No, they didn't. They don't say that. But what do they say when they say what they say in verses 16, 17, to 18? This is what they're saying. God saved us in this exile, right? We didn't die when Nebuchadnezzar just ran through Judah and went nuts. We didn't die there. He saved us in the exile to love him in our exile, and our greatest service to God is wrapped up in our obedience and our fidelity to his word. It's all we have now. Temple's gone. Synagogue's not happening. All we have is his word. And if we're going to be useful and fruitful, then fidelity to his word, faithfulness to it, even if it means death, that's our norm. That's our happy place. Peter writes the exact same thing in the first century to the exiled Christians of his day and our day, right? If you're in Christ, Peter says, we're exiles in this world. So we don't live on this planet like this is home. Like this is some, you know, great global tourist attraction. No, Peter says, listen, we live here as strangers. Strangers who are exiled, who know and feel and maybe wake up a lot of morning saying, I'm not at home in this world. I mean, it's nice. We understand that. It has a lot of high points. But it's still not home. And furthermore, Jesus Christ has given me a charge to keep. So I have to be faithful if I would be fruitful. Because Jesus is king. And so the three men are trying to be faithful. They've committed themselves to God's care. They've committed themselves to God's providence. To God's sovereignty. And to God's word. No matter what. Listen to Samuel Rutherford. A Puritan from a long, long time ago. Listen to what he says. God has a thousand keys to open up a thousand doors for the deliverance of his people. When it's all said and done, then let us be faithful and care for our part, which is to do and suffer for him. And let Christ do his part and leave it all there. Duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. Very liberating. Very refreshing. Now, Many of us will know that from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 7, Daniel is written not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. Aramaic was at that time, and long years after, was the language of the world. Jesus, when he walked this earth, he spoke in Aramaic. 
And that's important to know because now we know that this story is for the world, right? We have a story for the world. And this story shows us an example of, of a faith in God which is unencumbered by any earthly consequence, right? So when the men said to the king, we're with God no matter what, even if we burn, that, at that point you have one of the high points of the Old Testament and actually you have a turning point because these guys begin to set the stage to show us the rationale of suffering and the sufferings of Christ in the New Testament because, you know, up till now, generally speaking, you know, all God's people have been, once they got established, dominating, 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 dominating. Exile comes. They're not dominating anymore. They can't get out of this. There's no way they can fight their way out of this. Jesus is on the scene. Perfect. We've got the Son of God doing amazing things. We're going to be number one again. No, we're not. So we're going to see that God's purposes can be fulfilled even if it seems like his people and his son are being defeated. Because here in this story, we have a faith in a God who may not always make things comfortable for his followers. And you see, this, this would be so striking. So the pagan would be reading this, and they would just begin to think. A God in their minds, pagan mind, had as their number one duty to support and protect his people. In essence, to make their life good, to make their life work, business prosper, to give them what they need. And of course, they defined what they need because they would take their offering to the God, tell the God what they want, and then the God in turn would have to, he was obliged to give it to them if he's loving and if he's powerful. Now stop for a second. What is it that you hear so often in our day? Something horrible happens, some world event happens, and people say, if God is so loving and God is so powerful, then why did this happen? And so if God doesn't give individuals what they want, A, something's wrong with God, B, the information that they got about God is wrong, or C, maybe something's wrong with them. And of course, you know and I know that the third one can be thrown out. You see, all our disappointments with God will probably be because we behave as if we were God. And so the pagan would choose the God that would benefit them the most, and they could change their allegiance any time when it was obvious that there was another God across the street who was far more powerful, and that was routine in the ancient world. So then all of a sudden, Daniel chapter 3 is in their hands, and they're reading the story. And these guys say something completely different. Here it is. Okay, God may not save us from this fiery furnace, right? He may not heal us. He may not make us prosper. He may not fix all our problems. He may not heal our children. He may not save our kids, save our marriage, whatever. Okay, he may not do that. And in fact, this God later on will send his son to a Roman cross. So all of a sudden, the shallowness and the selfishness of pagan religion is uncovered. The shallowness of a religion which only works when prosperity abounds is exposed here. And this is a far, far cry from the story that we're being told here. Now, loved ones, you live in our modern age. We are so vulnerable to this, to this kind of like success type religion, right? Earthly achievement religion. And what we call a blessed state, right? You say, I've got my 40 acres, and my life is good, my, my job is good, my provision is good, I'm good, family's good, and everything must be good. But maybe not. Think in terms of business books and leadership books who assume that if you're on the right side of God, 
then you are guaranteed success. And if you're not given that success, something must be wrong with you. And it's all tied up in the worldly definition of what success is. And we are pounded day by day with the modern heresies which use Christian terms and Christian concepts. But listen carefully, they deny the very sacrificial nature of what it means to be a Christian, a, to what it means to be tied to the suffering servant. What it means to be saved by a cross. So now it may well be, people might say, we will not bow down only if our God saves us. But if he doesn't save us, we'll try another God. And you see, when that happens, God becomes for many people something to serve us and be used by us. Give me the success I crave, the standing I crave, the respect I crave. Give me what I want. I'll give you the prayers and the offerings and the monies and all that stuff. But then you have to, you have to give me what I want. Not so with these three men. For here we see a relationship with God which is committing themselves to their creator. Regardless of where their creator takes them. These men ask, and here we are again. This is the way we approach life. What is the right thing to do here? Last week, remember we said, this is Archbishop William Temple, that when we abandon the implications of the cross, we, we remove the ability to make good decisions. Here it is. What is the right thing to do here according to God? Not according to expediency, utility, preference, consensus. Loyalty to God calls for us to ask that question, what is the right thing to do? Listen to one of my commentaries that I used this week. The advantages of evil are too easily seen. Evil offers certain reward immediately, while goodness demands that we shall have faith in a deeper satisfaction and in a longer road. Loved ones, the decisions that these guys made, it wasn't a matter of pragmatism. It wasn't that they would benefit from their decision in any earthly way. They weren't thinking about the cost. They were not doing a cost-benefit analysis. It was simple. God said not to. So with God's help, we won't. We're going to trust God that when he calls us to obedience, he will take care of us in our obedience. Isn't that faith? That is Christian faith. When God calls us to obedience, he will take care of us in our obedience. If that means a furnace, okay. If it means no furnace, okay. Why? Because whether we live or die, if we're in Christ, Romans 14, we belong to the Lord. Okay. You'll see that if your Bible is open, Mr. Megalomaniac is consumed with rage. Right? Verse 20, he, he orders the furnace seven times hotter than normal. How hot is that? Right? Well, it's, it's hot enough to kill the men even more. But that's the point. Right? It didn't need to be any hotter to kill them. But the king's order made the miracle even better because it was seven times hotter. So people said, well, it wasn't that hot. Well, no, no, no. It was seven times hotter. So how hot was that thing? Well, it had to be somewhere between 1,400 and 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. You say, well, how do you come up with that number? I didn't. The National Funeral Directors Association, they said that on their website. And apparently they're right. Look at verse 22. It's sad. Some really good soldiers had to die just trying to toss the three men in the furnace. 
And the three men, verse 21, they were dressed to the nines. Very flammable, right? Robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes. <laughs> so this is a miracle. And by the way, we need to say to our friends who give themselves the task of trying to explain away miracles, we can show them that's probably not a good idea. Because most of the attempts that at least I'll find to explain away a miracle as not being a miracle makes the miracle an even bigger miracle. William Barclay, he's a great commentary. He has lots of gospel commentaries, but he doesn't believe in miracles. I mean, he's great historically, he's great, does great exegesis, but he doesn't believe in miracles. So he'll say, okay, listen, Jesus really didn't walk on water. It just seemed that way. And what was happening, that the boat that, that Jesus and the 12 were on was just floating in a couple of inches of water. So you read that and you say to yourself, okay, that's an even bigger miracle than the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. You got a really heavy boat, you got 12 heavy guys, and the thing is floating in an inch or two of water. <laughs> that's a pretty big miracle. Mr. Barclay, let the Bible say what it says. Go with the Bible. Guys, don't burn. Verse 24, the king gets up quick as a wink. Word translated in the NIV, amazement is more like he's in panic. He's afraid. He sees what's happened and he's afraid. So he was like, guys, just for clarity's sake, I mean, we did tie up three, right? Right, O king, you're always right. Verse 24, okay, now there are four. And one looks like a son of the gods. Now, is the fourth man, is he the pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ or is he an angel? We're not told. At this point, I don't think it really matters. It's a nice thought to think that Jesus would be with them, but the angel would be just as good. So whoever it was, this is what we need to know. The king is learning very quickly. I hope your Bible's open at verse 15. The king is learning very quickly that there is a God who can save these three from his hand. A direct contradiction to his statement in verse 15 when he asked the question, what God can save you from my hand? And you see, what is so amazing here is that Nebuchadnezzar, that naughty guy, is given the privilege to name the God who can save and is saving these three men from his hand. That's verse 26. Do you see that? He approaches the blazing furnace. He shouts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here he goes. He's going to name the God who saves. Servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. And there you go, from his lips to God's ears. It's beautiful, isn't it? How merciful of God to do that for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what happens next is, is personally my favorite part of the story. Okay, so after finding out that neither the king nor the fire was, was as powerful as they appeared, right? Because they went into the thing thinking, the king's pretty powerful, fire's pretty powerful. Well, not really. After finding out that God, even though they were not delivered from going into the fire, God would deliver them in the fire. And after finding out that the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 2, written 200 years before this event was true for them, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. After finding this out, <laughs> they're walking around in the furnace with either an angel or, or a pre-incarnate Christ. <laughs> they're not burning. They're, they're walking. <laughs> think, think about what you would do in that position with all that fire around you. <laughs> Just think for a second or two. They're walking. I suppose that's best, right? But when the king says, 
come out, they still obey their king when the king's right. Think. They get tossed in the fire because they obeyed God and not the king. Clear. The king is behaving really badly. Clear. It would appear now that these three men, they have the upper hand. So when the king says what he says in verse 26, hey guys, come out, come here. These three men could have said, hey king, why don't you come in here and get us? They could have said that. So to them, the guys, in their response to the king, this miracle wasn't a sign from God, you know, to try to mount a hostile takeover of the pagan king's kingdom because the government had abused its powers and now it's time for God's people to rise up and show the pagan king that our God is over fire and we're going to show you and this is it. You're done. That doesn't happen. They didn't try to begin a movement, right? The we won't burn, God won't let us movement. They got t-shirts and calendars and let's get this going. Our God is stronger than you and your God's okay. They didn't do that. No, the king says, come out. They come out. Why? Well, because God's revealed will hasn't changed a wink. These are good men. They are filled with graces given to them by God. Obey the king, essential truth. As long as it doesn't conflict with God's truth. Got that. And this is why I find this so endearing. A miracle happens. God is glorified. And these three men go right back to their post. They're given a promotion. But they go right back to the place where God had put them in the first place. They don't go on tour. The amazing fire, no fire tour. They just go right back to the place and they do their duty. And it all begins with a pagan king command to say, come out of the fire. And they do. What's the best place for us? The best place for us is the place where God puts us. Verse 27 the best and the brightest, they have to show up and they need to do an a inspection. Crowd around these three men. You see that there in the verse? They need to verify the miracle. And these uh, counselors and satraps and prefects, they, they give four evidences of why we live in an open universe. You see it there, number one. The fire did not harm their bodies. Two, their hair was not singed. Three, their robes were not scorched. Four, and there was no smell of fire on them. Now, how does that happen, right? You guys go camping. You know what happens. You wear your hoodie by the fire. You're on vacation. You throw the hoodie off before you go to bed. You put the same hoodie back on when you wake up because you're on vacation. And what do you smell? You smell fire. I lit a candle yesterday. And I was burning my hand because I couldn't do it. But anyway, I lit a candle. And I was like, this is I should, okay. A couple hours went by. And apparently, I didn't wash my hands because I, I did like this. And guess what I smelled? Burnt. Smell like fire. Hear no fire smell. Why? We live in an open universe. And God is sovereign over the affairs of the man. And when he, when he wills to heal and do miraculous, as always, God does everything well. He does it well here. Verse 38, the king says, Praise Peter, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And there you have it. Promotion is given. The boys go back to their posts. Okay, let's wrap this up like we did last week by thinking things through. 
verse, chapter 3. Chapter 3 puts away the argument that in order for us to be really, really good, and in order for us to be really, really faithful to God, we need a really, really good environment. And if we have a really, really good environment, then we'll be really, really good, and we'll be really, really faithful. Not so here in this story. Because in the kingdom of Babylon, you have a kingdom rated R in the morning, in 17 at afternoon time, and you have a kingdom rated X in the evening. And yet somehow, some way, because of the grace of God, in a horrible environment, these guys make exceptional decisions. Exceptional decisions. Chapter 3 also shows us the truth of Ephesians 4. Nebuchadnezzar is a baby. He has no self-awareness at all. He reacts and reacts to things, and he, he is tossed around, if you would, Ephesians 4, by every wind of doctrine, most of which is his own. And so, when this happens, we see in this man, someone who is not tied to any objective truth, to hold him down and to guide him and to constrain him. No, it's all subjective truth. And his subjective truth is his will and his want, hence the instability in his life. He has no self-awareness at all. He just says, whatever comes to mind, he reacts and, and doesn't react. He's mad. He's going to kill people one time, a different group, and then he changes his mind by the end of the chapter, and he's going to kill a whole different group. Instability, because he's not tied to any orthodox, if you would, theological truth that keeps us stable as it did in the three men. Also, chapter 3 is a picture of the seeming hopelessness. Now get this. The hopelessness and the helplessness on appearance that the kingdom of God is often placed in, right? Why does God put us in these pickles all the time? I mean, they're in a fire, the king, world king, three little boys, if you would. You're, you guys are as good as dead. Just, you're just dead. No, God does that to show us that only God can save. See, this is a resurrection here and all... Correct thought. This is, they're saved from the dead. And God will save in his own time. And he will save in his own way. We do our duty. God gives what's best. You find the same thing in the cross. To all but the eyes of faith. The naked 30-something year old man. He couldn't be the king that we were looking for. To conquer Rome and get us back into the first place of the world. No, he can't be the one. We'll go on to the next guy. No, he, he is the one. He is the one. Final thing, chapter 3, reminds us of the words of Jesus. Pretty simple, right? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Right? Blessed are they who don't see but yet believe. This, this was the three men. Someone once said, with no love for the truth, men have nothing to guide them. And, of course, that was Nebuchadnezzar. Let me close by asking all of us a question. Do we have any idols, anything, anyone, any amount, any activity that takes first place in our life over Jesus Christ? Let me tell you what will happen according to chapter 3. What will happen is we'll be noted more and more if we stay in this way as an angry person, a grumpy person, mean, hostile, sharp. Wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar? You'll never know stability. We'll never know stability. We'll always feel like everything is a competition. Isn't that Nebuchadnezzar? And if he can't be first, people will feel his wrath. 
You'll never know true faithfulness. Your apathy will make every decision for Christ seem like it's impossible. The things that Jesus asks us to do will seem like some great burden instead of a wonderful delight. Why? Because there's an idol there that's getting in the way. And finally, and, and probably worst of all, if we have an idol, anyone, anything, person, and so on, if we have an idol, then the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it won't be wonderful. It'll just be like, eh, it's nice to know that when I'm really, really bad, that Jesus will forgive me, and that's about it. That's good. There's so much more. <laughs> There's so much more in the gospel. If we have idols, the gospel won't be wonderful. It'll just be a... There's a hymn that was written a long time ago, and it has a line that says, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Let's make that our prayer as we pray now. Thank you for your attention. Father, we'll just say the thing again because it needs to be true. We have idols, whatever they be, help us to tear it from your throne and worship only thee. And God, we take great comfort in the truth of the gospel that reminds us that even in our failings, if we're in Christ, you look at us right now as spotless children, clean before your throne. Not one blemish do you see. And we thank you, Father, that your saving power is also resurrecting power. And we look forward to the day when we get our new bodies in the new heaven, in the new earth, and everything will be perfect forever. And we'll never have the struggles that we have to deal with here on earth. Now, Father, may you bless your people greatly this morning. Let the peace and the wisdom of Jesus rest on all of us, please, for his glory and for our sake. Amen.